If you've ever felt isolated, confused, or overwhelmed by midlife changes, you're not alone. Welcome to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. I'm so happy you're here. I'm the author of Me, Myself, and I, a midlife coach and public speaker. My mission is to create deeper conversations with dynamic people from all walks of life about how midlife's completely shifted who they thought they were and ultimately how they've come to see themselves again. When it comes to navigating the funky junk of midlife identity loss and the unnamed grief that goes along with it, it's time for straight talk. Get ready for real stories, real connection, and real hope accompanied by a little bit of humor and a whole lot of love. You're now part of Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. Hello and welcome. I'm so excited to be presenting you with my first podcast show of Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. Before we get to the first guest, rock star, drummer Kevin Rankin, I wanted to take a few moments to share with you the goal of why I'm here and how I hope Identity Talk helps you. In February of 2020, I released my first book, Me, My Selfie, and I, a midlife conversation about lost identity, grief, and seeing who you are. The book took four years to write and was released in the world to help anyone who ever found themselves stuck, lost, or lonely during midlife. I wanted to provide something different, something that gives straight talk and goes beyond the superficial solutions to a complicated time in life. I get it. Some of us may want the seven steps to bliss or to happiness, and real life is not really as tidy. How we navigate and make sense of a very dark and lonely time is the opposite of tidy. It's messy and follows no linear pathway or answer that is a one-size-fits-all. Although we all wish for ease and as humans we gravitate towards comfort, learning to see oneself again during midlife is all about the discomfort, the unknown, the uncertain. Me, myself, and I does offer many tips and insights, and I'd call it more of a how-why guide than a how-to guide. How midlife is completely unlike any other time in life, and why it becomes a confusing cluster of uncertainty, doubt, fear, and disassociation. And this sense of realness, and hope, and fear, and love, and connection is what I bring to the table. Identity talk is an extension of the conversation that I created in my book. I'm here to bring straight talk and humor, offer hope and insight for you and anyone else in the midst of a midlife identity loss. I'll be speaking over the coming weeks and months with many interesting leaders, luminaries, and everyday people about their midlife journeys, understanding what actually defines us, how to cope with midlife grief, and the ways they've learned to see themselves again. Identity Talk with Jana Lopez, me, your hostess, is going to be fun and fascinating. On with the talk with Kevin Rankin. He's been performing professionally since he was 16 years old, and he began honing his skills at the ski resort and bars of Montana. He spent several nights a week in smoky taverns learning the ropes of the live music business. In 1994, he moved to Portland from Bozeman, forming and building a solid base of music performances and touring. He has been a member and has performed with internationally successful bands, including guitarist phenomenon Jennifer Batten, who's amazing. She played with Michael Jackson. She is the guitar riff in Beat It. 
Eddie Martinez, also amazing artist who's played with so many bands, it's hard to keep up. Kevin's played with Missing Persons, New Shoes, and for a long time, he was with Animotion. You're my obsession. I couldn't help it. I love that song. In 2016, Kevin joined the 80s powerhouse, A Flock of Seagulls. And since then, he's been touring around the world with them at festivals and fairs, playing in front of thousands and thousands and thousands of people, bringing joy and music. Without further ado, Identity Talk with Jana Lopez welcomes Kevin Rankin. Thank you so much, Kevin Rankin, for being here. Kevin happens to be one of my favorite humans for a century of reasons, and I'm thrilled that he's my first guest on Identity Talk. And more than just being an amazing human and a good friend and a talented individual is this dynamic and this compatibility of timelines that we have both recently went through in our midlife shifts. His circumstances were, of course, different than mine, but nonetheless, it has been a dark and bumpy path that we have spoken about many times. People like him, you know, what he's been going through is one of the main reasons why I wrote the book, Me, Myself, and I. And I remember you and I talking about so many of the topics that are related to identity loss and midlife. And it was uncanny sometimes how compatible and parallel some of those bumps and turns were. So why don't we start off talking about who is Kevin Rankin? Like, what were some of the things that defined you and that you saw yourself as? I know there's a few categories, like being a drummer and being a husband and being a father. And so let's just start there. Sure. Yeah. Well, you nailed a bunch of the categories. I think for me, I felt blessed over the past few decades to have a series of identities. In a sense, I was... um, multiple personality, Kevin Rankin. Uh, I have the side of me that I really identified with since I was a teenager. I wanted nothing more than to be a rock star or to play the music and be in a rock band and be a drummer. I, I feel like through a channel of methods that I used, a lot of luck and fortune and everything along the way, that dream was realized. So the identity sticks with me. It's something that I really held on to as my primary identity, but I also felt like the shift, I would say, my late 20s, early 30s, becoming a father and a husband was something that was uh, absolutely important to me. So there was a part in my timeline, and then we can get into that later, that I went from just being drummer Kevin Rankin to husband Kevin Rankin and drummer Kevin Rankin, then the composite of dad, drummer, husband, and web designer. Um, I was working for a nonprofit for a while, then transitioned into a for-profit corporation company that uh, did web design as well. And so I had that that persona from nine to five during the weekdays. And then I'd shut that down and I'd uh, put my cape on and I'd go be uh, Kevin Rankin, the family guy and Kevin Rankin, the rock and roll drummer guy. And I balanced it really well. Most of the corporate world didn't know that I was in a band and I really liked it that way. In the mid 2000s, I left the corporate world and started my own company so that I could maintain website drummer guy on my own with my own schedule and still allow time to be family guy and drummer guy. And I think through a a period of time, the attention became less on wanting to be that center of attention on stage and 
my family became so important that it was a balancing act that I didn't know that I could maintain. I didn't know if I could do music professionally at a level that I really wanted to do and still be dedicated to my family. So your professional uh, and your personal lives were always working together and conflicting against each other. And you were used to navigating this switch of identities, so to speak, to kind of move in the world as a full human doing your life. Showing up to do a gig is not the Kevin Rankin who's wearing the suit and tie, which, God, I can't imagine. (laughs) (laughs) There are pictures out there. Yeah, I'm sure they (laughs) exist. But we do that. We, in our 20s, 30s, maybe well into our 40s too, we balance our personas, I think. I would say more juggle them, but it's not where we're really being pulled apart and we're seeing the seams rip before our eyes when suddenly the things that define us are asking us to look inside. It seems like, especially the drummer, Kevin, the one that I know, the guy that shows up on stage, I've seen many video clips of you playing, whether it's been with Missing Persons or Animotion or Flock of Seagulls. I've seen you where I almost don't recognize that guy either. It's not that you look unfamiliar to me, but you are so in the zone and you're so in the moment and you look and feel and come across as a rock star dude on stage. (laughs) (laughs) Got you fooled, huh? (laughs) Yeah, no, it totally is. I'm like, oh, that's Kevin. (laughs) So it's, it's interesting because I've had a chance to see you through those different lenses. So not only do we have to put them on for others, but it's probably rare that we get to see ourselves through the eyes of others in those lenses, which... I think in midlife, we're trying to get a closer look at ourselves. That's why the the whole show identity talk is how we learn to Mm. see again. We learn to see ourselves. But that whole idea. So you had said when you started thinking of yourself as a drummer as a kid in your teens, who was it that said and lit you up or that you listened to? What drummer did you try to want to be and emulate in their identity when, you know, they're the grown up playing the band, they're touring, they're doing all this stuff and you've got posters on your wall. Who is it? Yeah. Well, I will tell you that just prior to me becoming a drummer, I played clarinet for a couple of years <laughs> and my dad is a phenomenal clarinetist and saxophonist and was in a Dixieland band. And so I would go see his rehearsals and gigs as a, eight, nine, 10, 11 year old. And I just thought that was really cool to see my dad on stage. My dad was a rock star, just in a Dixieland band. He also was a phenomenal painter and sculptor. And so he had all sorts of creative outlets and maybe subconsciously, I saw that balance between his music and art being something that I admired. So I played clarinet for a few years until I hit puberty and realized that, wow, this is tough to pick up girls playing clarinet. Hot cross buns is not a chick magnet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I I became fairly adept at clarinet, you know, first chair and all that. But my uncle is an incredible jazz drummer. He was in Chicago and there was a summer, I think it was 14 that I went out to Chicago to see him and he had this incredible drum set set up and uh, it was a big drum kit and he had roto toms and I'm uh, saying the arrow in the heart. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, (laughs) It got me. 
and my cousin, his son, Jimmy. So Jim Farolo is my uncle. His son, also Jim, woke me up one morning blasting Van Halen's Unchained while playing on that drum set. And it rocked my world. It was the most incredible feeling. I just thought I've never seen or felt this kind of energy. And then that same weekend saw the first Motley Crue video. I saw Tommy Lee up there, so bombastic, doing his stick spins. <laughs> and it was probably that same kind of feeling that most 60s era you know, fans saw the Beatles and they just were, hearts went a flutter. But to me, I thought this is absolutely everything I want in life. I cast away the thought of playing clarinet, being a Dixieland band. And I just wanted to rock. I was a fairly good skier as well. And we, we were in Montana in the mountains. And up to that point, my idea was going to be, my identity was going to be a, uh, an Olympic skier. I wanted to race and do freestyle skiing. And I still love that side of things, but it became a hobby and everything else was about drums. I was already dating my then wife at that point. We met when we were 12. I landed her when we were 13 as a girlfriend. So she grew up through this formative era of me discovering my identity as a drummer. I think that helped in a lot of ways her understand my passion about music. And she got to grow right with it and was incredibly supportive. And where most musician friends that I had that had girlfriends or wives that saw their spouse or partner as a musician, they oftentimes felt threatened by the amount of time and energy that their partner put into music. Whereas my girlfriend, Jen, saw this evolution of my identity and was able to grow with it. So I was really fortunate to have someone there along with me to help that part grow. And it probably helped foster a lot more of my attention for that identity as time went on. And there was so much support and understanding through my entire development. I moved to Portland right after college to go pursue rock stardom. And she followed along without a question asked. She just knew that that was important to me and jumped along with me. So all these years later, you had to mutually agree that that relationship after many, 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 many years together where your identities were intertwined, she was part of you, you're a part of her. I know how painful that is and that was. and. That's one of the seven D's I talk about, you know, death or divorce or destruction or disillusionment. And when something happens as substantial as that, things start to peel open. And I know a lot of questions start to arise about who we are without the person who sees us and we see ourselves through them every day. Tell me a little bit about that as much as you are comfortable. Well, with that evolution of the identity, I realized many years later and probably too late, unfortunately, that that part of identity development was codependency. Our relationship had become so unhealthy in a codependent way that we weren't able to grow as individuals enough. Since we were together at such an early age, you know, those are your formative years and your teenage years where you develop some sort of sense of who you are and who we were, were Kevin Jen. We had license plates that said Kevin Jen. Our phone numbers and everything else were sort of intertwined. And I won't put words in her mouth, but I do know how important it was for my ex-wife to be a mom. That was her identity. She could have an identity as a mom and not so much just Kevin's wife, right? So she developed a real 
maternal instinct and she was an incredible mom, just dedicated every ounce of her energy to being the best mom that she could be. And I think at that point, I then allowed her to be that family identity character. And I worked more on balancing the web designer, Kevin Rankin, and the drummer, Kevin Rankin, and not so much dad at that point. I was still involved a lot. As soon as I'd get off work, I was with my kids every second. But I don't know that I developed that intense connection with them. And so there was an identity loss, I think, at that point where our interests and connection changed. And I see it now, but my kids are 18 and 20 now. So this is 20 years later, right? That that identity shift happened. And as those kids got older, in her space, her identity changed as well because she was mom identity. And as the kids became older teenagers, they didn't need mom as much. And so unfortunately, she didn't have the individual and independent identity to get to hang on to. My role changed as well. I think that was where we saw parts grow apart. We were so codependent. I didn't realize how unhealthy that part was. And we went to a codependency workshop where I walked in completely thinking this is all about her. Thankfully, I was willing to listen enough to see, wow, everything that's happened right now is such a two-way street. And things that I was oblivious to became more clear. This is about five years ago. I would say the transition and the trajectory was... It's always long and evolving. It never is. I mean, I won't say never. I would say most times the underlying parts of ourselves that are no longer serving us or that we're afraid to see or that we struggle with as we try to hold on and let go at the same time. And once we do let go, what does that mean? Where does that leave us? Like the description I give in my book, it's the emperor with no clothing standing at Times Square at 8 a.m., <laughs> you know, on the corner for every all the world to see. I think there's a feeling of extreme fear and vulnerability and uncertainty when we start to understand that we're not who we saw necessarily and that the identity is shifting because the things around us are shifting. So the pieces then fall apart around us. I know just from talking to you, there was a lot of sadness, a lot of guilt, a lot of regret, and a lot of uncertainty. Through it all, though, and we have talked, I saw that seed in your heart, you know. I've never had that picture with anybody else before, but I always felt that you were so tender in those times and knew and that there was something there that was about to germinate. I I could always see it. You know, you're still in it. I call it the dark Mm -hmm. flight of the self. You're still in it, but you're not where you were two years ago. I would agree. You talked about that trajectory. And for me, there was a pivot point at that point. When I recognized the codependency, it was at least an understanding that growth needed to happen. I was a couple of years into recovery or alcohol dependency I wasn't actively really working that program the way that they sort of suggest and that uh, I had a problem or an issue sort of letting go of a lot of things. Needed to be in control of things and really felt like I had to 
manage the pieces of all the puzzles in my life, right? And at that point, when I had this pivot point where I saw that uh, I had become so unhealthy in a codependency relationship, it was an eye-opener for me. It was number one, I wanted to see if I could still maintain that relationship with my wife. I thought I committed to this relationship where we're all in, right? Till death do us part. And I wanted to be able to see that I could handle cleaning up everything on my side of the street. You've heard the phrase a bunch, but this is a, a tremendous point for me because I had a lot of wreckage that I sort of left in my wake that I didn't even realize that I had. I was so selfish, I think, in, in a lot of ways that I didn't realize that all of that time and energy that I spent developing my identity as rock star Kevin Rankin left everybody as a second priority. So that was one piece of it. And then also looking at my accountability. And you mentioned vulnerability as um, a real important part of that change. And for me, being vulnerable was really hard. I've always been in touch with my feelings and I communicate the feelings, but allowing people to see who I really am and warts and all, you know, was, uh, was tough. I and- think that's different for a man because I imagine what was surprising to me when my book, my book first came out, I was so shocked. The emails I got and the texts I got were from men. And it was almost as if there was something that said, I'm able to give them permission to name something or feel something or not shame. I mean, I had heard that. I think for men, there's a lot of pride. So... How do you think it's different for men? You don't have to speak to all men, but for you as a man, how how was it showing up for yourself vulnerably or showing up to the world in a more vulnerable way? How does that sit when you think about that now? Well, you're right. The pride is probably the biggest thing that keeps men from being able to show their feelings entirely. And reading your book does put a label on some of those things, identifies where you can place some of your attention and focus without feeling like you're a complete piece of shit. I don't know if it's okay to swear on your podcast. It can. You can say whatever you want. You know what? It's my podcast. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, <laughs> just, just put are, it out there. <laughs> you know, there, there are some important places where, to, where that, uh, you know, that can, can happen. And for me, being able to say that I'm wrong and I caused this to happen and I'm sorry those are all things that are really tough for a lot of men to say, certainly for me to say, and to truly mean not just say, I'm sorry, but really work at fixing those things so that if it was something I caused to not do it again. Is uh, it scary or humiliating yeah. or embarrassing? If you had to put something to describe it, what, what is it? Or maybe it's all of those things, but. I think it probably is. I mean, I'm certainly for other people, it might be some, you know, one or the other, but for me, yeah, I, I'm embarrassed that I'm not perfect. You know, I'm embarrassed that uh, some of the choices that I made impacted other people. And for that, I feel guilt. You know, I grew up as an altar boy, right? I spent seven years in Catholic school. And so I ran from organized religion because I felt so much hypocrisy, all sorts of organized religion that I looked at, but specifically Catholic church for me, I looked at Christians and the Christian belief only through the eyes of people that I judged. You know, I would see pseudo-Christians and people that would act with so much judgment that I thought, this is bullshit. You know, if you're truly 
Christ-like, then you're all loving, right? You're, you're full of acceptance. So it's one of the things that I see in, you know, I talk about recovery because it's a huge part of my life. And I never would have thought that I would have even the, the willingness to allow something like that to be part of my life. But the things that I've gotten from it are not just a connection with people that are also working in a recovery program. But for me, that is probably the biggest part of it. But being able to see that, okay, number one, yeah, I'm not perfect, right? I, I, I tried to be Superman, right? I tried to be rock star drummer guy, amazing dad, a wonderful dedicated husband, a um, web designer that was uh, so focused on his clients that he'd take calls in the middle of the night on weekends and holidays. And then it led to other things like trying to fix the homeless problem in Portland, Oregon, or <laughs> I don't uh, mean to laugh, but I've, no, but I, I, mean, I, I had to laugh too. Right. Because it was all, it was an amazing experience trying to accomplish all these things. But at the end of the day, number one, it burned me the hell out. Number two, there's no way I could develop or dedicate a hundred percent of my attention and my passion towards any one of those things that I was focused on. I'm going to add a number three. It keeps you from yourself. Yeah, I mean, doing I all those out. things, the doing is what keeps us from the being. Yeah. And I talk about that a lot. If we're going to build our identities on these glass houses, eventually a rock is going to come and ship or a cantaloupe is going to get thrown in. You know, I think of Sex in the City when Samantha, <laughs> she's in the Hamptons. Anyway, I digress. She threw a cantaloupe in the glass window. But in the case of what you're saying, it's so clear how circumstances of our time in midlife plus the time of being in midlife and with you you add clarity because you got into recovery so circumstances plus time plus clarity equals you know i think it prompts the ability to to look at things and to start sure. to envision who we are that isn't really going to be who we're going to be i'm at the point right now where i really am excited about allowing who I'm going to be evolve. That's awesome. I struggled with it for the longest time because I still feel like I have to be this person today, right now. And if I'm not there, I have a sense of longing and again, guilt and remorse that I haven't accomplished all those things. When I talk about those accomplishments, it's addressed by that trajectory you talked about. For me, my trajectory is that if I look at the things or the people I guess the the sort of beings in the world that I admire and resonate with in my recovery program, the things that are really important to me ultimately are how it affects other people and ultimately what I think it's sort of egocentric to say it's your legacy, right? But I talk to my kids about it a lot because at this point at their age, one of my kids is very materialistic right now. He loves things. And I did too. And I think as you develop more of an identity, or at least an understanding of who you are, those substantive things, intangible things are so much more important, at least to me, that my trajectory wants to aim towards those beings that have that that Zen state, you know, the serenity state, if you will, you know, and, and like Gandhi, right. If I could have the perfect. No, Zen no state. the bar is set really low, Kevin. I think you need to up your ante a little bit. Gandhi, right, really, Gandhi. Just, 
yeah, General you know, Gandhi, come on, you be better than Zen than that. Oh, okay, well, so the, the ultimate trajectory, the Everest of, of that is Gandhi. That would be Mother, the Everest, right? Mother, Mother Teresa, right? She uh, struggled, though. You know, it's what I read about her because I did a lot of research about the dark night of the soul when I was doing this whole research about the dark flight of the self is what I call it. But even Mother Teresa, 10 years, she wrote letters of things that she struggled with. It is not an easy thing, and it's sure. it's tough and it's lonely. When you said that you're excited about this person, tell me about who this person is that you're wanting to see or seeing glimmers mm. of. That's a beautiful thought. Well, I can see that person as long as I see that I'm on the trajectory, right? If I'm aiming toward Everest, but I'm hitting each base camp along the way, like Fred Rogers, right? You know, there's a lot in the media right now about Mr. Rogers. We all grew up with him as, as kids. And thankfully, a lot of our kids know about him as well. And I'm sure, like Mother Teresa, like Andy, Fred Rogers struggled too. They don't hear about a lot of his struggles along the way. You know, you hear things about him going to Congress and having to fight Congress to get PBS funding. and But to get to the point that he was at where he could love and accept everyone had to be a real tumultuous path along the way. And so I see Fred Rogers as a base camp that's still almost out of reach. But if I aim towards that, because that is what I want, I want, and the glimmers that I see are that I'm less judgmental than I was a year ago or two years ago. And the experiences along the way have helped me be that way. You know, the, the work that, that I did with less judgment to yourself too, against yourself or just judgment in general to people or both. I would say both for me, Okay, like I, I talk about working with the homeless. You know, it's been a several year process and my ex-girlfriend and I started a nonprofit because we saw a need for homeless to have resources. And we also saw the way there was a stigma attached to homelessness. And here in Portland and a lot of uh, more developed cities that have technology, cost of living is so high that it's not the stereotypical person that a lot of people see on the streets. You know, people that are judgmental that don't understand homelessness, think that that person's out there, that they're a deadbeat, that they don't want to work, that they're looking for a handout. But we, when we work with the homeless, we could talk to these people at length and see that these are families. There are people that have had rough times. I have a feeling we're going to see a, an incredible amount of homeless just evolve from the coronavirus pandemic, you know, just people that are struggling financially and don't have any other opportunity and they can't afford rents. They can't afford mortgages can't afford utilities. And so they're going to be out on, on the streets. And, but talking to these people helped me understand. And even though I didn't feel like I was as judgmental about people that were struggling with that, I can articulate that to people that might listen to me without judging people out in the street. And at the same time, where I find myself failing in certain ways now, I would have seen it as such a failure before that I beat myself up about it. I'd feel guilty again. I'd feel like I was a shitty dad or a shitty husband or a shitty boyfriend or shitty web designer. Can I just be figuring shit out? Now I can. That I can give myself a pass on by recognizing, A, if I'm at fault, I can see that I did something wrong and I can apologize for it to the people that I may have impacted. But at the same point, it can't be lip service, right? It's got to be that I do work on myself and it is just figuring stuff out. And we are all figuring stuff out. I'm grateful to not have to be perfect. And I know that nobody is, not Gandhi. This is huge. I think it's super, super, super important. Self-forgiveness. If I could have been kinder to myself when I was in the midst of all the shit, 
It might have made such a difference, but I always had high expectations and big judgments against myself. And I think those are two major barriers from ever getting further with having a clear sight or closeness to our identity because we're too busy judging it and having expectations that are no longer realistic. Right. So in the interim, as we're figuring shit out and as things change and crumble around us, we're tasked with mourning these losses over and over and over again. And the waves keep coming. And I would say, especially now in this pandemic, okay. we don't have a life vest and the tsunami, uh, she's, a, she's arriving, you know, and it's yeah. sad and overwhelming. And I think even aside from the pandemic, just the process of getting up some days yeah. for me was hard to yeah. muster the energy. And it, it took a lot of will, but rather than being so hard on myself to beat myself up and expect something different, I probably wish I, I would have had a little bit of grace, which is one of the things that I want people to understand is that it's grief. Yeah. We're, we're changing and we're losing who we think we are and everything around us is changing and take some time and have a little bit of grace and a little bit of love and a lot of laughter. I mean, cause some of it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. A lot of that's uh, ridiculous. <laughs> you know, and just, do your best to, and I hate that saying, do your best, but do the most that you can in that moment to make room for things to show up. Sure. Something different than what you expected. Yeah. Watching for that is really important, right? If you are so caught up in trying to figure out who you are and trying to work through fixing all these pieces of your puzzle, at the end, if, you know, if you're not watching for some of that to allow yourself the grace, then I think you get caught in this spiral and, and I find myself there a lot. I really do. It's just, but it takes effort, you know, and really just being able to watch for it and, and be willing to see that it's okay to mess up. We're both parents, right? And so you navigate this every day as do I, and it's different now because we're modeling for our kids. And so it's one thing to find your identity for yourself, but if, if your child came to you and said that they were struggling with this piece because of your experience, you'd have a lot more to be able to give them perspective wise without. Yeah, they may not listen. <laughs> and you know what? And you, <laughs> they don't, might. And, and you don't, and you don't have to fix back. it for them either. No. If one of our kids came to us and asked, I think we'd be surprised and feel blessed, right? That they're asking right. an opinion or advice. But totally. even if you could, if you could tell them, you know what? You don't have to have all the answers and it's okay to screw up and it's okay to just let it be what it is. And I, I love that from you. You've, you've mentioned a lot and it's a gift. We need more of that right now. So I'm going to ask one more question and then I want a parting insight. So the last okay. question is, how do you get yourself back to seeing yourself as you are when you need it? Still a work in progress, but the things that are most important to me, I'm, I can't let go of, you know, I've considered that over time. I have a really hard time letting things go. I really do whether it be relationships or careers or bands or clients or anything like that. I guess they're all relationships really, but I think being able to let things that don't contribute to that growth go is I think what's going to help me continue my evolution of this identity. I think recognizing some of those things early on so that I can see that, okay, that can go into this other bucket the part that just isn't productive and contributing to my overall sense of growth. And if it takes me off that trajectory, 
you talked about the trajectory. If it's a diversion from that path, then I have to put it away. No matter how hard it is, then just continue to try and funnel things that help me on the trajectory. Just get me back on that path. Okay, so you know that this will be recorded and in a podcast. And then when you're feeling down, I'm going to break this little section back up and I'm going to yeah. say, hey, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have you listen to yourself, right? We'll bookmark it at the yes. minute mark. Yeah, that's yes. good. Yeah. Uh, you heard it here, everybody. <laughs> and then the last thing, you cannot imagine how many people Kevin has played with around <laughs> the world, how many gigs and how many beach parties and cruises and some of the bands, he does this thing with the 80s bands with this, the Flock of Seagulls and they play with Honeymoon Suite and Wang Chung and who else was on that tour? Oh, we've done so many. The Naked Eyes, and Richard Marks and everybody from the 70s, cool in the gang and a lot of bands that have become really good friends of ours. You know, it's like every band you can think of. It's, it's awesome. So Tom what's it like sitting at the beach for, you know, the... MTV beach party when they were all there. Martha Quinn, you met her and hung out with her. Debbie Gibson was there too, right? Oh yeah. I've got some good <laughs> Debbie Gibson stories. Yeah. Yeah. Actually you mentioned the beach. One of the really fun experiences that I've had, one of the most fun experiences just last year, downtown Julie Brown, we're sitting out with her husband was there and uh, a buddy of mine and I, and I just gave her an impromptu drum lesson on the beach. She's in her bikini and, 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 um, Fuck yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I'm holding coconuts and I'm showing her how to play a Lenny Kravitz. <laughs> yeah. And Martha Quinn, amazing. I was such a, a fan of her. All the VJs from that era have all become close. Alan Hunter is one of the most incredibly kind, gentle men I've ever met. And I, I just get excited when we're doing gigs with them just because it's, uh, you know, it's almost pretend time. Yeah. Well, I think you're, you're very much the rock star that you aspire to be and more. And I'm going to put links in to the show notes for some of Kevin's clips jamming on stage and the flock of seagulls and animation. And here we are. This is where it's at. And from the 80s to 2020 and back again. And back again. That's right. Yeah. Those kinds of escapes are pretty nice when uh, you're thinking about pandemics and, and world crises. If you get to escape for a couple of hours and just rock to the 80s, it's Maybe superficial, but it's uh, it's healthy. No, I think right now we need it. I could very easily put on one of my KTEL or Ronco <laughs> records on, in vinyl too. I'm the OG. Yeah. And yeah. maybe drink a little something tequila of some kind and, and hang out and, and bring ourselves back. Because during the times of uncertainty, I don't think nostalgia for those more innocent times is a bad remedy. So thanks for being with me on Identity Talk, Kevin Rankin, amazing drummer, rock star, father, husband, artist, philosopher, and friend. Hey, Jana. I love you. I love you too. All right. Take care, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. It's been a real honor. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, share it with someone you think is in need. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions or comments or would like to connect with me about one-on-one midlife coaching or to purchase the book, Me, Myself, and I, a midlife conversation about lost identity, grief, and seeing who you are, visit www.janalopez.com. Lastly, 
if and when you should have a moment of doubt, because we all do, in the middle of the midlife transitions and changes, remember that seeing is relieving.